This is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, found on page 977 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You've been waiting three years for this. Three years because people thought you might be a spy, so they had to take time to make sure you weren't going to turn them over to the empire. The most important moment of your life is finally here. So a group of you gather at church at night, the night before Easter Sunday, and you've been up all night praying, reading scripture, listening to teaching. It's been a long night, but it's worth it. Soon the sun begins to peek up over the horizon As dawn breaks, the rooster crows, and you and this group are led out into a pool of flowing water. And you all voluntarily remove your clothes as a sign that you're leaving your old life behind. You renounce Satan together. You're anointed from head to toe with oil, and then all of you are led into the water, and there you stand. And the first question comes. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? And you reply resoundingly, I believe. And they plunge you under the water and raise you back out of it. The second question comes, do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was dead and buried and rose on the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended into heaven, in the heavens, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead. Again, your voices, your voice connects with everybody else's voices, and you confess out loud, I believe. Back down into the water, and out again. Finally, the third and final question comes, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? and the holy church, and the resurrection of the flesh. Even that louder now, you all cry out, I believe! And a third time, and last time, go down into the water and back out again. This time when you get out, they anoint you with oil again, they clothe you, they bless you, and you're led into the Easter worship service with all the other believers. And there, at that time, you're invited to the Lord's table, and you can take communion for the first time. And as the worship service concludes, you're sent out with everyone else into the world to do good works and to grow in faith. What I just described to you was how adult baptism took place in the ancient church. And we know that from a document from the early 200s called the Apostolic Tradition and also points us to the roots of what we call the Apostles' Creed. And we we know from Irenaeus, who's a church father in the 100s, we're told that this Apostles' Creed, was, or they called the rule of faith as well, was widely dispersed only about like 100 years after the Apostles. 
And rumor had it that each of the 12 apostles actually contributed a line to the creed. But it's more likely that the Apostles' Creed is really just a summary of what they believed. And so creed means belief. And the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the Apostles' belief or of Christian belief. And we begin a new series on that today. And it's great to be back in the pulpit today. It's great to be preaching back here today. It's been a while since I've been here. And it was a lovely sabbatical. I think probably the shortest version I can give to you is that it was everything I needed it to be. I was a good connection with God, good connection with my family, and it just was restful. And coming back, what I wanted for us was a back to basics series. Let's get back to the basics. And so coming off the last time I preached, we, I preached in a series called the Cultural Creed, so I thought it's appropriate to do the Apostles' Creed now. And in many ways, they couldn't be any different. But the question we're answering in this series is, what truths do Christians proclaim to a post-truth world? In a world that resists truth, it claims that any truth claims are about power, which in itself is a truth claim. But anyway, what are the truths we share as Christians to and for that world? And so the Apostles' Creed, as we'll see in this series, outlines the gospel. It gives us the gospel in a nutshell and helps us fulfill our calling as God's people in our world. And today what I want us to see, particularly, we're going to highlight each week we're going to take parts of the creed and we're going to kind of break them down and talk about them. Today I just want to focus on I believe. And I want us to take away today that the Apostles' Creed provides us a collective focus as we join together in worship, community, and mercy. What the Apostles' Creed does, it gives us a focus. But it's not just my focus, it's our focus together as we try to live out the values that we try to live out here at Liberty Northeast of worship, community, and mercy. So I just want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about the creed and worship, the creed and community, and the creed and mercy. So let's just look at the creed and worship. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And eventually we'll get all the way to verse 16. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What the Apostles' Creed does is it invites us to shape our lives around the story of God. J.I. Packer writes a book on the Apostles' Creed, and he says this. He says, if life is a journey, then the million-word-long Holy Bible is a large-scale map with everything in it. And the hundred-word Apostles' Creed is the simplified roadmap Ignoring much, but enabling you to see a glance, at a glance, the main points of Christian belief. And a more like modern analogy would be like the Apostles' Creed is like everything your Google Maps app can do. Or sorry, the Bible is that. It shows you everything you need to know about life and faith. The Apostles' Creed is like when you load up directions and says, here's the way to go through. 
The Bible is not just 66 books. They're actually a collection of books that makes up one story. So it's not 66 individual stories. It's one story told throughout 66 books. And what the Apostles' Creed does is it gives us a simplified version of that story. So what's happening here in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, which are around the city Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, and he writes to them to display the scope of God's eternal plan for all humanity. And he says, this is what God has intended for all humanity from the beginning, and it was a mystery up until now that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has taken two groups of people, Jews and non-Jews. He says Jews and Gentiles, and he's brought them in faith together as one people of God. This was God's story the whole time. So he says there's the body of Christ one body, verse 4 says. One story of the one God who sent his one and only son to die for our sins, to build us up into one body through one spirit. Like, look how many times he says one in this passage. Tons of times. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The story of God is the story of redemption of all mankind in Jesus. And the Apostles' Creed is an acknowledgement that my life is part of a larger story. It's part of a larger plan. A plan, as Ephesians 1 says, to unite all things in Christ. Rowan Williams used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury until about 2012. He says, I believe in God. The beginning of the creed is the beginning of a series of statements about where I find the anchorage of my life, where I find solid ground where I find home. See, what we have to come to realize is that everyone worships. Everybody worships. Our lives are an act of worship, and we anchor our lives in what we worship. It's just a matter of what or who we worship that determines whether or not we'll experience freedom or further slavery. And the Apostles' Creed says the only thing worth worshiping. The only thing worth anchoring your lives around, the only thing worth finding your home in is in this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because the hard truth is that you, is that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. If you worship money, you will become greedy. If you worship your kids, you will become smothering. It's the hard truth of parenting, right? You love your kids. You want to make sure you don't worship them, but you love them. And at some point they go, like they're on a couch somewhere at 45 years old, and you're in your 60s at that time. And then they, get, they go on a couch and talk to a counselor and complain about you. And then they have the audacity to call you and tell you how you screwed up their life. Which, I, like, at 65 or in your 60s, like, what are you going to do at that point? You're a grown man. I can't do anything for you anymore. 
But that's what happens, right? We, so many people worship their kids. They put everything into the kids. They stop wanting what's best for their kids, but they want the best kids. And so they just dump everything into that. And what happens? They become smothering. And the kids go, whoa, I don't want you around. This is too much. Or if you worship your career, you become stressed out. It's all you think about. You're thinking about it right now. All the emails you got to answer when you get back. You're like, I'm going to go to church. I'm not going to think about my work. And you do. Or you worship politics, you'll become divisive. I don't think I need to show that anymore and just to say that. And Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Live as an act of worship, anchored at, on solid ground in your home of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who brought you into his story. See, God chose to bring you into his story. You didn't choose to go into God's story. You weren't looking for it. We weren't even born yet. And yet God goes, I want them to be part of my story. And so then you have the creed and worship, but the creed also helps us with community. Look at verse 7 through 10. But grace was given to each of you, or each of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things." The Apostles' Creed reminds us of God's story, and with God's story comes the gift of community. And first, we have the gift of community of the past, which is what we probably would say is tradition. Now, I know some of you are like, hold up, time out. We're doing a series on the Apostles' Creed. This feels like weirdly not Protestant. feels very like Catholic. I'm not sure why we're even doing this. Tradition, right? Aren't we about the Bible? We're Christians. We're Protestant Christians. We should be about the Bible. Sola Scriptura, right? Everyone should say, yeah, all right, amen. Sola Scriptura means Scripture alone. And when the Reformers came up with that, they weren't saying that Scripture is the only authority. It's like, well, I have this pain in my tooth, and unless I can find the answer to it in Scripture then I'm not going to deal with it. It's like, no, your dentist is an authority. It's not saying it's the only authority, but it's saying that Scripture is the final authority. So with the Protestant reformers who pounded the pulpit about Sola Scriptura, and they read the church, they read the church fathers. They affirmed and promoted the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Martin Luther actually even encouraged people to pray the Apostles' Creed. Because he believed there's a great summary of the gospel. See, the reformers' concern was not in tradition itself. Their concern was that the church had fallen into unbiblical tradition. And they, what they sought to do was recover biblical tradition. They didn't say, well, you know, what Augustine said is wrong because that's in the past. No, this is actually what tradition does is tradition is a conversation partner with the past. It's the living faith of those in the community of the past, faithful men and women who are now with the Lord. 
Does that make the Apostles' Creed or Augustine or Luther or Aquinas? Like, do they have greater authority than Scripture? No. But their voices weigh more than mine. If you've lasted 2,000 years, I guarantee you, I would just, I just guarantee that no one will be listening to these sermons in 2,000 years. But we still say the Apostles' Creed. A thousand years, we still read Augustine, we still read Aquinas. So yeah, they're not the final authority, but their voices weigh more than mine. They weigh more than yours. The Apostles' Creed reminds us that the church didn't start with me. God's people didn't start with me or Liberty Church or Billy Graham or the Protestant Reformation, which was an attempt to reform the church, not to do away with everything before it, but it didn't start then. It wasn't like one day they woke up like, oh, wait, like we've, we totally forgotten what it's like to be Christians. It's like, no, 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 we got gotten away from this. Let's get back to it. Instead, the Apostle Creed reminds me that I'm part of a larger story of God's redemption of a people and that God was faithful to a people, his church, the church of Jesus, his faithfulness to the community of the past. And look, I know that our culture is skeptical towards tradition. Like young people, let me just tell you this. Like when I do premarital counseling, and someday you might decide to get married or God might call you to marriage. Some of you might be called to singleness, which also is a great gift. But when I do premarital counseling, I always encourage using traditional vows. Like, I, I get it. Your wedding day is supposed to be special. The bride is a princess. Like, I get all that. And there's this desire to personalize it. But the funny thing is, the more you personalize yours or your vows, they end up sounding the same as everyone else's who personalized theirs. Like, everybody's weddings now look like Pinterest, right? We're all trying to personalize, but somehow they all look like the one picture we all saw on Pinterest. Oh, I'm going to write my personal vows, right? But then I go, oh, I promise to always make you laugh. Like, that is impossible. Because ladies, what happens is, young ladies, your husband eventually will just start telling dad jokes. He just, like, seamlessly just goes right into dad jokes. They went from funny to embarrassing. Or I always promise to, like, I always promise to back your dreams and support your dreams. Like, what if your dreams are dumb? Do I still have to support them then? I'll always rub your feet and make you coffee, and when you get home, I will make sure the house is clean, and I will make you a cocktail. Like, this is some episode of Mad Men. Right? Like, it's just not the way things are, but we always pers- try to personalize it, and it sounds like everyone else, because culture, we're told that the truest thing you can do or you could ever say is what you've come up with yourself. But the more unique you try to be, the more you look and sound like everyone else, everyone else around you. Churches do this too, don't we? Certain churches are skeptical of creeds, but love mission statements. Love those mission statements. We got to say them all the time. We exist for whatever. But we want to say the Apostles' Creed. That's Catholic. That's weird. Like, don't act like you aren't thinking this, all right? I'm not the only one. Certain churches are skeptical of tradition, but everyone who preaches and teaches must not differ from the founding pastor's interpretation. 
well, we don't believe in tradition. No, 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 no. But you have to preach off of this person's notes. And if you don't, watch out. You're probably not going to have a job anymore. Many churches emphasize trying to be relevant and unique, but why is it that the, when I look around, the supposed most relevant and most unique churches all kind of look the same? Like, I don't know when we decided that, like, fog machines were the thing. We went from incense to fog machines somewhere. Why is everything really dark and the lights are really bright? I don't know. There's nothing wrong with those things. I'm not saying there's something wrong with them, but we all are trying to be unique and creative, and we end up looking just like everyone else. So churches do the same thing that culture does, but what we're, do, we're, we're invited to in Scripture and in, in Gospel, in the Apostles' Creed, is into a culture, but not a culture that has a story of the endless pursuit of being unique. And not only does the endless pursuit of being unique leads you to looking and sounding like everyone else, it's also incredibly exhausting, isn't it? To always be unique, you'll never win. Because as soon as you achieve what you think makes you unique, someone just runs right past you. Like, remember when Blackberries were a thing? Anybody remember the Blackberries? Raise your hands. You don't have to be ashamed. Yeah, kids, you don't. You're welcome. Like, thank Steve Jobs that you don't know what Blackberries are. Remember, owning a BlackBerry was like a status symbol, and we all loved those little tiny keyboards, and our fat fingers were just like typing text messages that made no sense. Now we send text messages with Siri, like I did to Elliot yesterday, and like could have, like the text message, Siri, whatever they, she typed, could have got me fired, but that's another story for another day. But everybody, what everybody did, they all, we all started making phones. Because of BlackBerry, we all started making phones with mini keyboards. And then what happened? Steve Jobs said, we're going to get rid of the physical keyboard. And we're just going to go with a screen. And everyone's like, Steve Jobs is nuts. But now how does every smartphone look? It's just a screen. You see, we all try to be unique, but then everybody catches up, and we're not unique anymore. And that's exhausting. That's why I'm not buy, running out to buy new iPhones all the time. Because I don't need more pixels in my camera. I don't. Give me something unique. I fall into it too. This endless pursuit of being unique hasn't left us settled. It actually has left our, left our culture exhausted. And churches and Christians, we fall into it too. And the more unique you try to be, and even though the more unique you try to be, you sound like everyone else, the more you look and sound like everyone else, and you say, I have to be unique, it leaves you exhausted, and it actually leaves you lonely. Because I pursued being unique, being creative, and I'm out here all by myself. It didn't create a community for me. It actually left me exhausted and lonely. And the Apostles' Creed invites you to a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and into a 2,000-year-old community who are a gift to come alongside of you, to build you up, and to sustain you. So I always try to tell, like, young people who, like, go off to college, I say, look, anytime someone throws an objection out at Christianity at college in your classes, I guarantee you someone in the past 2,000 years has answered that question and addressed that objection. I guarantee you. So when your professor's like, well, how could a good God allow suffering? You're like, come on, man, seriously, this one? Like, do, you, do I need to dig up? The church fathers on this one for you? 
But we're like, oh, that's a good point. Like if we actually are conversation partners with the past, we actually see ourselves in community. Not only do we look at the past and go, wait a second, somebody else has answered this. We actually have people in our community that can say, hold a second, my professor said this one thing. Could you help me figure it out? And it helps sustain our faith. Look, does that mean, let me just say, I'm not saying you're not unique. I know we all watch Barney and we're all told we're special. I get it. Look, you are special and God has made you as special. And your gifts are a gift to all of us. Don't send me the nasty emails that, well, Barney said, I don't need them. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that your uniqueness isn't the final destination. Your uniqueness is to find your home in the triune God and his people. And so then Paul says, not only do you have a community of the past, you have a community of the present. Look at verse 8 again, which is kind of a weird Verse, like, you might be like, what is he talking about? Ascending on high, led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. What Paul is doing is he's citing Psalm 68, verse 18. And in Psalm 68, what's happening, God is this divine, seen as this divine warrior who ascends to his throne after defeating his enemies. And what God does, the Psalm says he receives gifts from the vanquished. But what Paul does is something different. He, he slightly modifies it or tweaks it to with a what we call like a Christological interpretation or a Christ-centered interpretation of the passage, where now Christ is the divine warrior who ascends to his throne in heaven. And it, but instead of receiving gifts from the vanquished, he gives gifts to who? It says men. Paul says to the church. So what are the gifts that Christ gives? We might be thinking about spiritual gifts, like you have a church background, you might be thinking like, oh, he's talking about spiritual gifts. But actually, in Ephesians 4, it's different. What are the gifts that Christ gives? He gives people, specific people. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are the gifts to you and me. Leaders. People who advance the gospel, who advance God's word. Those are the gifts that Christ is giving to you. But why? He says, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul's saying, look, you're actually at points going to be wanted to, you weren't going to want to be drawn away. But God, God, has given, God in Christ has given you gifts, leaders to pull you back. So you're not children anymore, but you're spiritually mature. So you're not tossed to and fro, but you have a foundation. So you're not like somebody comes and they give you a nice sales pitch. They come, you know, um, uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and they give you a nice sales pitch. And you go, hmm, no. See, Jesus gives his body, the church, the gifts of leaders with the specific purpose to equip the body of Christ for the work of ministry. It's not about leaders doing everything. It's not about not having any leaders. But it's all of us working together to build each other up so that together we can become spiritually mature followers of Jesus. That's why we do home meetings. Is that together we sustain each other's faith. Together 
we grow into the fullness of Christ. Together we become mature. Together we pull each other away from human cunning and deceitful schemes. So when you and I start the Apostles' Creed with, I believe, what's happening is each of our individual voices come together as if we're one person. That's why we don't change it to, that's not why, and that's why it's never been we believe, it's I believe. It's not that you're an individual believing, it's no, all of our voices are coming together like one person with one voice that transcends each of us individually. So when I can't see Jesus in my life, the one voice reminds me where he is at the right hand of the Father praying for me. When I think my sin is too great, the one voice of the Apostles' Creed reminds me of the forgiveness of sins. When I'm suffering, the one voice reminds me that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and he rose from the dead. When the world seems like it's getting worse or that I'm alone, the one voice of the Apostles' Creed reminds me of life everlasting and reminds me of the communion of the saints. See, it's not me, but it's still I. I believe. The Apostles' Creed unites us as a means of sustaining us. And the Apostles' Creed reminds us that community is a gift. And lastly, the creed and mercy. Look at verse 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Listen to this. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Apostles' Creed, lastly, helps us love and serve those around us. We've said this time and time again here. Do not tear apart what Christ was torn apart to build. Look at all the building language here. Look at all the body language here. Look at all the growing language here. How can we do that if we're constantly pulling each other apart? We're constantly looking for boogeymen in our church leaders. Well, like, well, let me just, I'm going to hang out until you say something I don't like because there's a boogeyman hiding under your bed that's going to eventually jump out and scare me. That's not like, there's nothing in there about that. It's about trust. It's about love. It's about caring for each other and serving each other. And the Apostles' Creed reminds us that we've received mercy from God and Jesus, so we should show mercy to those around us. Now, look, if you, go to the, if you look for the Apostles' Creed in the Bible, it's not there. But it's, what I'm trying to show you is that it's built out of the Bible. Because the beauty of the Apostles' Creed is this. It majors on the majors. It focuses on core beliefs that unite us rather than convictions and preferences that divide us. I'm going to put on the screen, we're going to put on the screen a circle. This is concentric circle, I believe, up in there. Yeah. Here you have core beliefs, convictions, and preferences. Core beliefs are biblically grounded beliefs. They're what the church has believed historically. Like, let me just put it this way. The triune God is not a preference. That's a core. Convictions are biblically grounded opinions. And preferences are morally neutral, not really biblically grounded, and they're kind of more based on my taste and my experiences. So while it, it may not cover every core belief that's, that we receive from the Bible, the Apostles' Creed is a good start. 
But what's also nice about the Apostles' Creed, it doesn't make everything a core belief either. So convictions like the mode of baptism or the method of baptism or your view of the spiritual gifts or what you believe about the specifics of the end times, they're all biblically grounded opinions. They're all convictions, but they're not core. And preferences like what style of music we use on Sundays or what Bible translation you use or what you wear to church are preferences, not core beliefs. And while at Liberty, we, do, we may preach and teach our convictions, and sometimes we'll talk about our preferences because we believe they're true and helpful and good, we always do so, Paul says, to speak that in love. See, we threaten the unity of the body of Christ when we turn our convictions and pres- our preferences into core beliefs. Like, you may prefer that your pastor sounds more Republican or more Democrat than he does. Or maybe he uses less or more sports or office references in his sermons. We're not talking about anybody here. You may prefer that your church had certain programs or using a different Bible translation or whatever. You may have a conviction about what happens at communion or when somebody should be baptized. You may have solid, biblically grounded opinions, but are they core things? I say no. But if you make them core things, if you push everything into the center, you'll want to leave and you'll want to condemn and you'll want to put on blast other followers of Jesus. That's what happens when we take all the preferences and convictions and say, no, all that's core, and I'm going to fight to the death to, to hold these things. And the same would be true if he made everything a preference. Like I said, the triune God is not a preference. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the virgin birth, not a preference. These are core. Take that away and all of it falls apart. Rather, we're called to show mercy to each other because we received mercy from Christ. Instead, we are supposed to build each other up in love, Paul says. And the first step to do that is to trust each other. But we don't trust each other because it's good to trust each other. It's a good idea. Maybe we have reason to trust each other. We trust each other because we trust God. That this is a story, a long story that God has invited me in. And because we trust God, we can trust God's work in each other. Here's the good news. None of you, including myself, has finished the process of sanctification. The Holy Spirit's not done with any of us. Do you trust that Evan's going to get better? No. But you trust that the Holy Spirit's still working. Me and my strength, I'm just, I'm not going to get better, but the Holy Spirit is going to start convicting me of things and changing things in my life. And I go, well, maybe I shouldn't do that, or maybe I shouldn't text Elliot that. You know, like those kinds of things. Holy Spirit's not done. And so what the Apostles' Creed should do is actually make us more trusting. It says here, the major on the majors. Focus on the core. And then we could talk about convictions and preferences. But hold on to these things. So if I come up here one day and I say, you know what, the triune God, not a thing. Every one of you, I have my permission right now, record this, leave. Leave. Better yet, go tell the elders. And if they don't do anything, then leave. 
See, what the Apostles' Creed, J.I. Packer says, in it we, we learn first to believe in the God, God the Father who hath made me and all the world. Secondly, in God the Son who hath redeemed me and all mankind. And thirdly, in the God the Holy Ghost who sanctifies me and all the elect people of God. See, if I trust the God who created me and the world and who has shown me mercy because of the work of his Son, and I've been given the Holy Spirit to sanctify me and make me more like Jesus, and who has given me and brought me into a community that's a gift when I see all that God has done for me, when you see all that God has done for you, we can then trust that same God to be doing the same work in our brothers and sisters. And we become more trusting of them, by be- and by becoming more trusting of them, I can unite with them as one voice, proclaiming the one story of God. So what I'd like us to do now is what I want us to do at the end of every sermon in this series. I want us to stand up and say the creed together. I want us to stand up and say it as one voice and proclaim the one story of God. So would you stand with me and we're going to say this together. It's going to be on the screen. As you say it, I want you to think about what we talked about, this one story. The community that you're in, as well as the mercy you're called to show. So Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Father, we thank you for bringing us into your story, giving us a community. And because of Jesus and what he's done for us and the work that you continue to do in each and every one of us, we can show mercy and be united to each other. Lord, I pray this series would unite us rather than divide us. I pray that we would grow in our core beliefs and even in our biblically grounded opinions like our convictions. But we wouldn't let convictions and preferences divide us. So Lord, be with us. Thank you for your faithfulness throughout the generations. It's remarkable in and of itself that a creed from the 100s made it all the way to the 21st century, and we're saying it today. Thank you for your faithfulness. And as we come to the table, we thank you in advance for the faithfulness of Jesus and what he's done for us, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.